this is the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast at hppodcraft.com. Settle in for part one of our coverage of The Challenge from Beyond. Now, this whole podcast and the following podcast were done live, recorded live at Leeds at the Traveling Man Lounge. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. George Campbell opened sleep-fogged eyes upon darkness and lay gazing out of the tent flap upon the pale August night for some minutes before he roused enough even to wonder what had awakened him. There was in the keen, clear air of these Canadian woods a soporific as potent as any drug. Campbell lay quiet for a moment, sinking slowly back into the delicious borderlands of sleep, conscious of an exquisite weariness, an unaccustomed sense of muscles well used and relaxed now into perfect ease. These were vacation's most delightful moments after all, rest after toil in the clear, sweet forest night. You must have been really tired of being asleep through that buzz. Just <laughs> <laughs> speaking of vacation's most delightful moments, I am having one right now. This is my vacation. I'm very happy to be here in Leeds with this incredible Wait, audience. Who, who, who the heck are you? Uh, my name is Chad Pfeiffer, and who are you? I'm Chris Lackey. That's right. And we're here at the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. HPparkcraft.com. And we are joined by our frequent star reader, Mr. Andrew Lehman. Hello there. People listening, uh, it's not just Chad and I in this room here, no. and Andrew. Not we, at all. We've got some other people. Yeah, that's right. Namely an audience. That's right. Yeah. And uh, some supporting crew. That's right. Uh, first of all, I'd like to introduce Paul McLean. <laughs> if you don't know Paul, he is the host of the Yogg uh podcast at yogsonhub.com. Uh, Paul, what, do you have anything exciting going on right now over at this one. Yes, it works. Uh, yes, yesterday we launched the Cthulhu World Domination Tour 2012. What, what, what is that? <laughs> My goodness. Okay, what we're doing is we're sending a small, cuddly Cthulhu around the world, various parts of the world. He's going to be visiting various members of the Oxford Forums that had his picture taken in various lovely locations, including these. And everyone who acts as host for Cthulhu has agreed to donate a small donation to their local charity. So it's for charity and to have some fun by sending little Cthulhu around the world. So watch out for little Cthulhu in a town near you all over the world. <laughs> I think he's going to Otley first, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and also we have, uh, to my right, Corin Zero of Zeitgeist Zero. <laughs> If you don't know the band Zeitgeist Zero, you should go to zeitgeistzero.com and hear their music. They are amazing. Yes, indeed. Yes. And uh, and so thank you, Corn, for doing music tonight. Thank you, Corn. Uh, the story that we are doing is The Challenge from Beyond. The Challenge from Beyond. And while, while we usually uh, simply cover H.P. Lovecraft stories or stories that he's re rewritten with collaborators, this one actually has a, a big group of people. Yes. And in fact, that opening paragraph we heard was by an author named C.L. Moore. And uh, there's a couple other authors that we'll be hearing from. A. Merritt, Robert e. Howard, and Frank Belknap Long. And also H.P. Lovecraft. And also H.P. Lovecraft, who 
for some strange reason, has the longest section of the story. Uh, <laughs> what's, the, what's the background on this? I mean, how, how did this even come about, this sort of... Uh, well, this story? story was the brainchild of Julius Schwartz, who was the editor of Fantasy Magazine at the time. Now, Julius went on later to become uh, editor-in-chief of DC Comics. Which I didn't know until yeah, you told yeah, me that. I didn't know that until recently either. Well, anyway, he had this idea for the third anniversary of the magazine of doing this round robin. So he was going to do two stories called no. Challenge from Beyond. What's a round robin? A round robin is where one person uh, starts off the story, hands it over to another writer, and then they just pick up from there. And they can do whatever they So it's like serial collaboration. It is, it is like serial collaboration. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Well, uh, have you ever done one of these things before? Like a writing class or an acting class? Or I, no. No, I've, I've heard of the, the pictorial equivalent, and I, I think that is called an exquisite corpse, if I'm not mistaken. It's a deal where you have like a piece of paper and you fold it into four panels or something, and one artist will start a drawing on the first panel and then fold it over so you, all you can see is the very edge, and then the next artist will start from that edge and make more drawing and keep going until the whole paper is filled up and then everybody gets to see what the drawing is drawing of. And how does it usually come out? Uh, in my experience, not particularly well. <laughs> well, in my experience of doing these group, or we used to, in, in, in English class, we'd do these kind of things where one student would tell about 30 seconds of a story and then pass it on to the next one. And you'd all try to continue the same story, but I hated the exercise because you'd start getting something really good going. And then they get dirty? I wish it got dirty. Then it would be interesting. But no, normally what would happen is uh, some people, People that had very limited imagination would bring in like franchise characters, you know. So you, you have like you have a great princess in the castle, and then Superman would show up for oh, no reason, right, right. or Tarzan. Yeah. Or you're not. I'm. This sounds great. Right. Yeah, this sounds amazing. Superman or Dorothy. I want to read these stories. No, it was always well, terrible. So I came to this story with the feeling that it might not be that great, or it might be lacking some continuity. Well. <laughs> and We'll see. Well, anyway, the, uh, there was two ideas for the story. Uh, one was the sci-fi and one was weird. For the, for the weird story, it was going to be more long, Merit, H.P. Lovecraft, and an undecided fifth person. And for the sci-fi version of the same name called Challenge from Beyond, it was Stanley G. Weinbaum, Daniel Wandry, who we've talked about on the show before, E. Doc Smith, Hal Vincent, and Murray Leinster. So I've never read it, and it was hard to find on the web. Has anybody ever read the other Challenge from Beyond? No, no. I like how you say one was sci-fi and one was weird. I would have such a hard time explaining that difference to somebody. <laughs> what was it? Are you putting me on the spot right yeah. now? Yeah, well, I am, kind of. I mean, like, when I read this, it kind of seems sci-fi to me. Yes. I think back then, there was a more sharp distinction between those two genres. Sci-fi was, I think, much more technologically oriented, and weird was had a little more of the fantastical element and a little more of the occult. Thing. I think that distinction has been mellowed over time, but well, I, mean, I think it was a sharp distinction. Do people know what weird fiction is? Anymore? Nowadays? Yeah. No. You're not seeing a lot of weird fiction bookshops down in no. the corner. You're right. You're right. Absolutely. Well, this is the weird one that we're reading right now. Yes, this okay. is the weird one. And how this started, uh, like I said, Julian Schwartz, it was his idea. He got these guys together. First, long, uh, no, not long, Moore did the first section of it, and it was handed off to Merritt. Now, Merritt was a the kind of the biggest celebrity writer in this particular story. And when he, oh, I'm sorry, Long, first, then Long got it. Then after Long wrote it, sent it to Merritt. Merritt was, he said, oh, this, this person didn't know what they're doing. This is terrible. This isn't in the spirit of the round robin. So I want this gone. And since Merritt was the big celebrity at the time, they, they cut it out. And Long was off the story. And 
Lovecraft, after reading Merritt's part, thought it was terrible, and so he goes, okay, I'm gonna come in here and make a real story out of this. <laughs> and then he gets uh, Robert E. Howard, who was a friend of his, to do the next part, and then because Lovecraft really was really good friends with Long, he got Long to come in and fit, tie everything up. Right, so Long ends up at the end of the He's story. eventually back in on it, yeah. Okay, well, the, those authors maybe we'll talk about a little bit more after we get through the content of the story. Some background on them. Correct. Why don't we get into it? That's when I do a transition usually. Oh, yeah. Okay. Is that how you do them? What's that? Is that how you do them? Yeah, that's oh, exactly awesome. how I do them. This actually really closely resembles how I usually record the podcast. The only difference is that the 50 people I have in my apartment are very quiet. Uh, but it's how I prefer to do it, just staring at people that I don't know so well. So, okay. So the story starts off. As from that reading we heard from Andrew, it's uh, George Campbell, he's on a camping trip out in Canada. And he wakes up in his tent and looks at the night sky and goes back to sleep. Then he he's a geologist and he's on vacation. He's on a three-month sabbatical out in the wilds of Canada, just enjoying nature, getting away from the hubbub of the city. Right. Uh, he's a geologist. He's a geologist. Yeah. So so even though this is the CL Moore section, we do set it up with the Lovecraftian protagonist. Yeah. He's an intellectual, he's an academic, he's out to get some R and R. Uh, from what he's been doing. I, he kind of hates his students. He, you get the idea. He's a geologist. It's a funny character. He's a geologist because he loves geology, but he hates having to teach geology to these idiots. So it's, it's a good Lovecraftian protagonist. Uh, he's in his tent at night. Yes, and he's, he's sleeping and he hears this noise outside. He thinks it's some kind of night critter. So he wants to scare it off. It's in his tin cans and, and things. He reaches over and grabs this rock, but it feels strange. And as he looks at it, it's not any ordinary rock. It's it's a cube. Right. It's, it seems like uh, it might have been, well, it, he later says it's made of quartz. Right. So it is a, a rock, but it's been smoothed in some unnatural way so that it's become a cube. By the way, I like that, he, that, that little creature that he was going to scare off just kind of falls out of the story. But no. When he was first described, it said a dark and ominous little night beast. <laughs> which I thought had a lot of potential, and I was really hoping that something would come of it. It doesn't. Spoiler it doesn't. alert, nothing does. But uh, it's just sort of a... a an inciting incident for him to try and pick up a rock. Yeah. Which is just right outside of his tent. But this really crazy artifact is right outside of the door of his tent, so I don't really know how he didn't come across it while he was setting up the tent, but he must have just been particularly sleeping. Exactly. Um, but as you say, it's made of quartz, it's a perfect uh, cube, square, four by four. It's very worn down because it's very, it's very old. But there's something in the center of this quartz. It's a little tiny disc and it has these strange glyphs on it. Uh, he thinks maybe they might uh, be Sumerian? But right. he realizes if it's quartz, it has to be tens of millions of years old. It couldn't be Sumerian. And he knows about ancient legends where, uh, you know, they used to say that quartz crystals were just ice that never melted. Right. <laughs> so he, he goes, well, maybe that, maybe that was it. And then he also thinks it could have come from a meteorite from another civilization. But I'll worry about this in the morning. It's time to go to bed. He, well, he, the reason he decides to go to bed is because. Uh, he felt his ears going hot at the luridness of his own imagination. <laughs> so this rock just really sparks his feelings in some strange kind of... And that was a really strange sentence, actually, because nothing he had said thus far seemed very lurid to me. Not There's nothing lurid about, yeah, maybe this is really old. No. Dirty. <laughs> so, uh, he flashes off the light. But then for a second, yeah. it seems like the rock glows a little bit longer than the light. Right. It's uh, 
sort of reminded me of when you get a glow-in-the-dark uh, toy of some kind and then yeah. you have to hold it up to the light and then you do the first test because you're so excited to see if it glows or not or if it's a t-shirt or garment or something like that. Then you get under the covers and you see if it glows and do that for a couple hours. It's like, I love to do this. Anyhow, that's our setup. And, uh, and that concludes, that concludes. CL more. Right. Now we get into a merits section. And what was it about Merritt? Merritt was the big deal. He's the big deal at the time, yeah. Um, I'll, we'll talk about Merritt at the end. Okay, right. Yeah. Sorry. But this, was, this should be the star, you know, star player. Yes, this should be the awesome part of the story because he is the most renowned author of the time. Right. Yeah. So Merritt picks up the story and it's funny because he says, you know what, I'm going to go to sleep in the morning and then I'll ponder it then. And then Merritt immediately does the first mistake of the round robin and he says, no to what the former author said and says, you know what, I couldn't sleep, I'm going to stay up all night and look at this thing. So yeah. It's a refusal right out of the gate. Um, and that's what he does, but I think he starts playing with his flashlight, right? Shining it on the thing, right. yes. and then pulling it off, shining it on the thing, pulling it off. It does seem to be glowing. And it also makes a strange sound. That's right. He heard a sound. It was the very ghost of a sound, like the ghosts of harp strings being plucked with ghostly fingers. <laughs> he bent closer. It came from the cube. Uh, I, I feel like uh, the next word should be ghost. Yeah, <laughs> just ghost, period. period. That is the most uh, usage of the word ghost in the yeah. sense I've ever seen. Ghostly fingers. Ghost of a sound, ghosts of heart strings. Ghostly heart strings. Yes, yeah, he really works with ghosts. He does. That guy knows how to work a ghost. It often said about Merritt. Uh, <laughs> Well, now, there is a little commotion in the brush, right? Yeah, yeah. He thinks it's an animal maybe killing another animal. Very primal. Oh, you know what? Maybe that is where my little guy went. Yeah. He what? Gets, he gets killed? No, he was the one that he threw the rock at, and then he goes out and he gets in a tussle with another animal. Sure. So it's kind of the bee story, the whole thing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> as far as I can say. It's great <laughs> foreshadowing for the end, too. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> okay. It is. Anyway. See, I'm discovering stuff up here. Uh, all right, so keep going. What's going on now? Uh, so he wants he wants to investigate, and he, mm -hmm. and he goes out to try and see what it is, and he can't quite figure out what's going on. But then when he goes back, he sees the stone is glowing, and he, for a moment he's going to reach and touch it. But then he goes, wait, maybe maybe I shouldn't touch it. Maybe I shouldn't. But I, I'm going to shine my light on it mm -hmm. and see what happens, and shine it off, and it, it seems to glow a bit more. And then he comes to the conclusion that. What's causing this thing to glow is his electric light beam and the fact that he's looking at it. Right. <laughs> Which seems kind of silly because how would he know it was glowing unless exactly. he was looking at it? Well, I mean, he's, he's establishing, right. it's like me saying, you know, my neighbor screams every time I look at her. I'm also at her window and it's midnight and I should be staring in there, but I know that partly it's because I'm looking. Yes. It's ridiculous. Might as well have leprechauns involved in there. It, it doesn't really make any sense. <laughs> but funny nonetheless. It's also neither hot nor cold. Yeah? Yes. Oh yeah. When he holds it, it's as though he's not holding anything at all. Right. Because it has no temperature. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Horrifying. <laughs> the horrifying touch of a lukewarm object. <laughs> he picks it up off the floor. He takes it back to the tent so you can study it a little more. Boy, uh, oh, he's got a table in there, that's right. Yeah, he takes it there with yeah, tent. Does it seem to you guys that this tent keeps getting bigger and bigger? Every bigger time he goes in it, there's more stuff in the tent. Now that there's like furniture in the tent. Yes, that's right. Okay. The first time I read it, I, I pictured a pump tent. A pup tent. Yeah. But 
By now, he's got a desk and a chair, <laughs> yeah. and a laboratory, and yeah, a laboratory. Yeah. Tapestries on this. Well, um, and then, what, he keeps shining the light? I mean, this this section sucks. He keeps shining the light on it, it makes it glow some more. We could have said this in three sentences. Yeah. He hears the ghost of music again, he gets touched by some ghostly fingers, and then the crystal... The crystal part fades away, yeah. just the disc is there, and he pulls him into some kind of void. And that right. ends. That's it. That's, that's pretty much it. That's what very is that's right. But it's important, that's that's the launch pad for what is about to be the right. HP Lovecraft section exactly. of the story. As the mist-blurred light of the sapphire suns grew more and more intense, the outlines of the globe ahead wavered and dissolved to a churning chaos. Its pallor and its motion and its music all blended themselves with the engulfing mist, bleaching it to a pale steel color and setting it undulantly in motion. And the sapphire suns, too, melted imperceptibly into the gray infinity of shapeless pulsation. <laughs> Lovecraft has entered the story. That's yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know that when you hear undulantly, there's only one writer who responds. <laughs> so by looking at that disc, he's suddenly whoosh, kind of flying through some sort of void. But he has no physical form anymore. That's right. He's just a consciousness. Yes. Because if it was physical, he feels that this would rip him apart because he's moving so fast, it feels like he's going faster even than the speed of light. It's some sort of astral voyage. Exactly. And this is so intense. He does something very surprising of a Lovecraft character. He faints. <laughs> <laughs> when I printed the story out, Lovecraft's section was three pages long. Yeah, it's about three, three-fourths longer than everybody else's yeah. portion of the story. Yeah. And three times the amount, well, actually, he... For those three pages, there's like a fainting on every, every page. page. Yeah. <laughs> there are three three fainting spells in this. So he's a, a conscious, just a consciousness, a body floating in this gray void. Mm -hmm. And he... Oh, there's a green... So he doesn't know what's going on, right? Uh, why he's flying through this oh, right. void. Yeah. And then it says here, it, uh, he suddenly has a... Gosh, I kind of remember something, though. Wait, let me think about it. It says it had come from some vague flash or remote recollection. Some cell group at the back of his head had a, a familiarity which was fraught with dim terror. So he, suddenly something occurs to him about what might be happening. Yeah, just a very dim memory. Mm -hmm. Just kind of a, a general gist. <laughs> that then becomes incredibly specific for the last three pages. Which then occupies yes. the next few pages of the story. Yeah. <laughs> so what is this cell group in his mind? What, 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 is, what is it dimly recollecting? Remembers finding something. Of, uh, some, he remembers that something was found in England 30 years prior, mm. uh, and it was called the Elkdown Shards. Now there was this clergyman in Sussex, Arthur Brooke Winters Hall, mm -hmm. who claimed to know where the, the glyphs came from, and it was a prehistoric civilization that was talked about in these occult books. Now this was the first guy, uh, with the four names Arthur Brooke Winters Hall. Yeah. Was the first one to translate these glyphs, these inscriptions. Of the Eldam shards, which yes. are these clay yes. kind of, what are they, chips or... Yeah, yeah. it reminded me of uh, like the Nikal text, which I think was the, the mysterious, you know, carbon stele that Churchwards thought he found in Tibet that would, you know, reveal all the secrets of Mu and Atlantis and all that stuff. Uh, so it's the sort of same idea of the Eldam shards, that was what I got out of it. Yeah, that's probably what inspired it. Uh, maybe something like that. Yeah. Well, and you were saying it reminded you of the Piltdown. Well, just like, well, yeah, just because of the name. Yes. Yeah, but name. then we were wondering, is, is Elkdown, is that an English... Uh... Yeah, English people. Is Elkdown a real place? No. No. Good no. Right. no. All right. Well, there we go. Well, there we go. Thanks. <laughs> nice theory, Chris. Uh... <laughs> 
Anyway, the translation of these ancient fragments has a very detailed story, and uh, so begins. As the story went, there dwelt on a world, and eventually on countless other worlds, of outer space, a mighty order of worm-like beings whose attainments and whose control of nature surpassed anything within the range of terrestrial imagination. They had mastered the art of interstellar travel early in their career and had peopled every habitable planet in their own galaxy, killing off the races they found. Yeah. <laughs> Murderous worm people from another galaxy. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, they, they want to kind of master time and space and right. study other cultures. They can't physically travel these huge distances all over the universe, but they can cast their minds forward using these cubes. Yes, but they, but how it works is that the cubes have to... Oh, we're gonna, is that? Is that what? Wait, that's a quote. When, yeah, we just wanna do it that way? Yeah, let's do it that way. All right, let's hear the actual text then. The mind that noticed the cube would be drawn into it by the power of the disc and would be sent on a thread of obscure energy to the place whence the disc had come. The remote world of the worm-like space explorers across stupendous galactic abysses. Received in one of the machines to which each cube was attuned, the captured mind would remain suspended without body or senses until examined by one of the dominant race. Then it would, by an obscure process of interchange, be pumped of all its contents. The investigator's mind would now occupy the strange machine while the captive mind occupied the interrogator's worm-like body. Then, in another interchange, the interrogator's mind would leap across boundless space to the captive's vacant and unconscious body on the transgalactic world, animating the alien tenement as best it might, and exploring the alien world in the guise of one of its denizens. Now, Chad, yeah. <laughs> something about this is a little familiar to me. It is. Sounds basically like the plot of The Shadow Out of Time. Yes. Which we just covered. Which was written before this, yeah. but not published. So I think, Oh, that's right, wasn't yeah, it? No, no, Love, so Lovecraft, I think, was kind of going, well, probably nothing's going to happen with that, so let me get that story out. See, However, now I feel bad, though, because earlier I was like, how lazy is that? Why did you have to use the same melodica? And everybody put, well, it wasn't published. Okay. In his defense, though, he he puts in the Indians. They come up a little bit later. Yeah. Right, the I'm Indians were the aliens in the shadow out of time, and we're doing basically the exact same thing. They were exchanging bodies with people over vast expanses of time so that they could study other cultures. They'd swap bodies with them. Now, what happens with, with these guys, these worm people, to get these, this seems really practical to me, but to get these crystals off to other planets, they just shoot them out into space and hope that they land on a habitable planet. Right. Which, uh, but, I mean, do we, we do that, don't we? Do we shoot probes into deep space? If we don't, we should, guys. Yes. <laughs> well, I mean, Voyager. Voyager. <laughs> Voyager is uh, a probe that just went out of our solar system not too long ago, and that's not going any place in particular. Okay. And we all know how that's going to end up. <laughs> <laughs> Are you talking about actually? <laughs> are you talking about uh, what Stephen Hawking said? You know, you know what I'm talking about. Or are you talking about Star Trek The Motion Picture <laughs> where both of them are horrible outcomes? <laughs> yeah, neither of us go very well. Do you remember that, Chad? With V'ger from Star Trek The Motion oh, yeah. Picture? Oh, yeah. They just did a kind of a parody of it on Futurama where they found a probe called Vigini that was... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's not my joke. This is a G-rated show. Yes. Uh, well, you know, these guys are really the worm people. 
strangers are kind of jerks. They uh, <laughs> when they would find another race capable of space travel, they would exterminate them. Yes. So it's not like they were going to other war. They say for diplomatic reasons. Yeah, diplomatic. That's uh, a nice way of putting it. Yeah, but. You would think maybe they go to other cultures and they say, all oh, these people are inferior, so we want to destroy them. But they're actually people that might be catching up to them. They don't want the competition. Right. Yeah. That's horrible. They're nipping in the bud. <laughs> Before it gets out of control, they shouldn't do that. Why? Well, what, then, if you do that, if you're lazy like that, then they'll mm -hmm. get better than you and kill you. Okay. All right. Fair enough. It happens. Well... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, oh, sometimes they even move out, or they start a new civilization. They'll just go occupy everybody yeah. on a planet. Oh, yeah, they'll yeah. just take over the entire civilization. But even then, it's kind of limited, because they can't make more of their fancy world-dominated cubes anywhere. Exactly. Of their whole planet. <laughs> yeah. But if they're going to do that, that means that everybody on that civilization or that culture had to look into the cube, right? Yes. So how do you think that went? It seems what? like a very tedious way of taking over a planet. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, did one guy get it and go, guys, you all have to look at this? <laughs> and then they all went out and ran a campaign, or did they do it just through television? Or, you know, how would they get everybody to look into this cube? Yeah, well, there's something, there's a property of the cube. The way it was designed was to attract beings of the appropriate intelligence mm -hmm. to look into it, according to Lovecraft. Right. One of the things, though, I think. Yeah, you just solved it all. Yeah, there you go. The Indians, which I think was really cool, when they, one of them found the cube. He right. got the only one ever. The only one that actually landed on Earth right. landed on Earth at the time when the Yithians were the dominant form of life here. Yes. And they recognized it when they saw what it was doing. They said, "Hey, wait a minute, that's what we do." So yeah, and, and they got really they got really cutthroat about it. Yeah. And all the Yithians that had worm guys in their bodies, they just killed them. Executed. They executed all of them and said, "Well, too bad, Yithians that are stuck in worm bodies, you're on your own." <laughs> We gotta protect our civilization. They got cutthroat about it, is a funny way to describe it. <laughs> you know how that goes when time traveling races and cats. Uh, well, so the Atheists did that, and, and, and a result of that is that these worm folks hate Earth. They hate Earthlings. Yes. It's not our fault, it's not humans' fault. No. We're mad. No, no. Yeah. And the cube was then put away for safekeeping by the Indians. They don't want to destroy it because it's technology and they are collectors of information and knowledge and things. So they put the cube away, but over time, eons... They, they had their own problems to deal with. They got run out of town and exactly. the cube was left apparently lying on the ground somewhere in Canada. Yep. Yes. They shot forward into the future to occupy a race of, of beetle men. Right. <laughs> From shut out time. Yeah. It's so crazy, but um, that's basically what happened. Now, so after sussing out this dim recollection from the back of his mind that yeah. has all this incredibly detailed information, Campbell realizes I found that cube yeah. in my camping area, just kind of laying out. Uh, now, and now, now he feels he's been shooting through time and that sort of thing. Yeah, he's in this void. He's, he's in the void, right? Yeah, just okay. kind of sitting around, thinking on his own thoughts. He has no idea how long he's been there. Hours, days, years. Right. It, he's lost all sense of time. And then he senses another presence in there. Now, if you remember from the description that Andrew was reading, that's their modus operandi. They, they get in with him, and then they start kind of going through his mind to learn about the civilization. So they they take all his thoughts about culture and what he, his knowledge of history so that they can be ready when they take over the body to get in and cause whatever mischief they want to um, plan. Yeah. Which, is anybody, is Flash Gordon a popular movie you guys see? Flash Gordon? Yes? Yeah. yeah. There's a scene in there where Zarkov gets his, all of his memories sucked out of his brain. 
I think that they show like a Hitler rally and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I used that used to scare me for some reason when I watched that movie. It's creepy. there's something about somebody being able to reach in and take out all those really personal things. And this in particular, I would be so embarrassed if I was the one that the aliens got. <laughs> you know, now it's they call it Facebook. We do it to ourselves. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we just put it all out there. Yeah, that's oh, true. Okay. They wouldn't need to do it. Social networking. Why? I just imagined that they would get some accurate details about the world and history, but most of it would just be complete BS. I don't know, oh, you yeah. know, yeah. the stupid things I think that are true that I don't tell anybody, but I think. Right. My terrible geographical knowledge and historical knowledge. Well, you just know. the other day we were looking at, we were over at the, the Bronte Museum and we were scratching our heads going, when did the Bronte sisters live? Yeah. When were they? Was that the 1400s? Right. <laughs> All I know is there were castles. So these worm guys, are going, you know, they come back going, the Bronte sisters. Well, I mean, what they probably know is that uh, they come with the information that humans like looking at naked humans. Right. Yeah. <laughs> if they got to me? Yeah. <laughs> no, Chris, a long time. Um, so that's the first stage. Yeah. Suck all the memories and the, the right. thoughts out, and then, and then there's the replacement. That's what's going to yes. happen next. So he finds himself uh, lying on some kind of slab in this room with a very high ceiling. Uh, he tries to move his arms, but he can't feel his arms. Mm -hmm. He doesn't know what, what's 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 happening. He tries to see, but open his eyes, but he doesn't have eyes to open. And he gets this weird sense, which is neither sight nor hearing, or it's some kind of new sense, and that's how he's able to perceive this room around him. Mm -hmm. And there are no, there's no furniture, there's low tables, and those glyphs, that, that glyph that was on inside that crystal, they're all over the walls. And he can see all the walls at once. Yes. Somehow. Oh yeah. It's like he's got 360 degree vision or something. Yes. Like yeah. But the actual nightmare element is, uh, is when uh, something starts advancing, he sees something through a slit in the wall coming over to him. What's going to happen? Find out next week, or just read The Challenge from Beyond. Special thanks to Paul McLean over at yogsoffup.com and Corin Zero of Zeitgeist Zero. Check them out at zeitgeistzero.com. And a special thanks to Teresa Dead, also of Zeitgeist Zero, for all of her help and support at the live show. Without her, we wouldn't have been able to do it. So thank you, Teresa. And another reminder, this weekend I will be doing a signing of the Lovecraft Anthology Volume 2 at the York traveling man that's york in yorkshire from one to two and at three o'clock i'll be doing a short talk about adapting lovecraft and on the 21st of april i will be at the comica comic book convention in london so come down and check that out following weekend the 28th i will be in newcastle at the traveling man store up there for more information on all of those things just check out the show notes tune in next week for part two of our coverage of the challenge from beyond live in leeds i'm chris lackey and you're listening to the hp lovecraft literary podcast at hppodcraft.com hppodcraft.com hp <laughs>